music was brought to you and played by Steve Miller, my brother-in-law, and produced by Lainey Miller, my niece. I'm here today with Dave Raymond. Dave is the original Philly fanatic, the Phillies mascot for baseball, if you're questioning what that is, but I can't imagine anybody that doesn't know who the fanatic is. What's really neat is he took that role from a college intern type position into his first career. Uh, I don't know how you did it, but you did it for 16 years at games, at events, at funerals. And I'm sure we'll talk about that and other places where you brought the, uh, the fanatic. And Dave leveraged that really unique experience into the business world with several businesses, including mascot training and character building. And he runs uh, Raymond Entertainment Group, uh, speaks often on the power of fun, which also happens to be the title of his book. And he's often heard on the speaking circuit. So great, man. It's really great to have you on the show, Dave. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. I, I, I love being here with you. What else would I say? I really wasn't happy to be here. I probably wouldn't be honest, but I'm being honest. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> what I say, it's awesome because so, we're... we're we're good friends and we've got a great history and, and I'm excited to chat with you today. Dave, I was thinking about that. Um, it's so much more fun to talk to successful people that you kind of know. And, you know, for my audience, uh, so it's out, uh, the brand is Outside Insights. It's a podcast. It's some writing. And very simply, I found that I've created a community where people are trying to close a gap. It could be a personal gap. It could be a professional gap. And everybody's trying to kind of get what they want or live the life that they want. And it's just been my goal to create content uh, that creates that kind of value. And I think that's, you know, it, it's often well-received. Uh, I think successful people like you um, can make it look easy, but I love it when we tell the stories of what it took to get to where we are and, that's just sort of the the fun along the way. Um, we also grew up in a, a college town uh, in Delaware in the mid-Atlantic and have connections to the university. And we tried to grow businesses together, which I think is crazy in an exchange group. But how many years ago was that, Dave? Oh, my gosh. Um, God, it has to be it has to be 12, 12 to 13 years at least. Um yeah, time and, has uh, a way of and loved, it seems like know, a year peer group. Yeah, well it's 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 a it's a great bucolic uh, leave it to beaver history in that town of Newark, Delaware. And you know, and I, I grew up there and you grew up there and we we've lived it and it's um it's a wonderful place to be from. Um but you know, we get a little bit of the big city in us too because of Philadelphia and and Washington and New York being all right there in the mid Atlantic region and I think it's one of the best places in the world to actually live because you have access to so many great people and such great culture. Um, so we're lucky. We're lucky to be small town, but but in an area that we've got a big town reach. Completely agree with you. So I, I thought you would appreciate and respect my first question. I think we have to start with tell me something good and just I thought you could explain the concept and maybe we both better answer the question. Uh, awesome. Well, well, my, my, I'll, I'll, uh, won't bury the lead. My something good is being here with you. I, I just love this format. It, it's, it's wonderful to be a part of. So, um, so that is my something good, but here's the concept. I'm telling people to stop 
asking folks when you greet them, hey, how are you doing? Because you've truly asked them to dump on you because our brains are wired to have negative stories and imagery right up front. It's the way it's been uh, wired into our brain. You know, it's our dino brain in full effect. So what you do with tell me something good is you require somebody to give you a 100% completely positive response, which is fun because especially if you're talking to somebody who was about to dump on you and you make them turn off that negative brain bias and come up with something uh, that's positive. The beauty of it is those conversations, because they started in a positive frame, actually continue that way and they end up being um, uh, more effective conversations in order to connect to somebody. So whether you're a coach or a leader, a friend, um, a spouse, uh, a parent, starting out with, hey, tell me something good is is great for both of us. So, so my something good truly is I get to spend the day with you recording something that um, I think folks will enjoy hearing and, and maybe pull some tip or trick or life hack from. And uh, I know I'll be feeling better for the rest of the day just because of this conversation. So what's, so tell me something good, Chris. So my something good is that my team thinks that I'm an absolute rock star that I get to spend a little time with you this morning. They actually can't believe it. Uh, and I know how that must make you feel. And of course, just to tell you how real things are, uh, this is a home studio and I have a neighbor blowing leaves. And isn't that the joy of real life, Dave? But um, <laughs> just, the, just the, as my the, phone beat too. My, my phone so you see, buzzed, you I know, think, so it's great that people should know that that stuff just isn't added after the fact the fact you know to make it real this stuff happens in real time you know it's been uh quiet for three hours this morning and of course it's not quiet now isn't that the way it is um and sometimes they, course, the world just likes great. to throw stuff at us you know your concept of tell me something good it makes me think about it. i've learned that in I, oftentimes I use that in a meeting where I'll ask people to share good news news. And it's the same sort of framing where the goal is to have people kind of get into the space and to get out of their head. So I, I, I love that as a, as a conver conversation starter. Frankly, it just has such bearing. I think a lot of folks probably ask you to start with the fanatic story. And I, and I know you're comfortable in any direction that we go. I know we'll inevitably talk about all things the fanatic as it's such a foundation of what you've built. But share with my audience kind of what you're up to today, and maybe we can back into the fanatic story. Oh, I appreciate that uh, quite a bit because normally it starts with the fanatic, which again is fine by me. I'm 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 thrilled and happy to talk about that, and I know a lot of people in, enjoy that uh, that backstory but you know i'm i'm really passionate today about um you know talking to people about a lesson that i learned unknowingly um and i spend every day writing and talking about um a, a mindset shift from the fun that we know uh into the realm of what what we call powerful fun um and i'm and i've been able to you know the, the speaking chris has been so amazing because I'm able to touch base with a skill set 
that I was unaware of, which was a performance ability to perform, and in, in the case of the fanatic, to perform uh, non-verbally. Um, but I'm able to engage that skill set with with some verbal um, skill now on stage. And my whole my whole goal when you're talking to somebody is have this um, pathological empathy for your audience that they're going to give you an hour of your time, and you better. Um, appreciate the fact that their time is valuable. And so I need to speak to them. I need to engage them. And it's been so fascinating to learn how to go from a, a conversations where everybody wanted to ask me questions. Everybody wanted to hear from me because uh, the, the fanatic story overwhelms. And I found that I learned virtually nothing about communication, which is ironic. I, I was communicating non-verbally through my whole job. But then when I got out of costume and I was having conversations at parties or social gatherings or as I built my business, um, I was so used to people asking me questions that it took me a long time to recognize that empathy and listening were the most powerful tools that you could use, not only for business, but for connection. So I get to wake up every day and, and learn about, you know, connecting to other human beings and understand their story and listen to them. And then when I'm on stage, I'm trying to engage them and bring them in as if uh, they're sharing their story with me. And, and, and that's what I've been so fascinated by, um, by performance, by speaking, and, and what a speaker's job is to make people uh, think, feel, and act differently. And um, it's been a wonderful ride of, uh, of growth and understanding um, and, and creating uh, empathy for an audience and, and really trying to help them move in a different direction. So I was, I was thinking about that from preparing to talk to you. I actually was thinking if when you were out of costume, if you found yourself being demonstrative with your nonverbal communication, because it was everything, but we can hold on to that. It just struck a chord based on, on what you shared. So I, I read, I read your book, The Power of Fun. I devoured it. I enjoyed it. Um, I happened to be a sports fan and connected to many of, you know, uh, the, the stories you shared about the Phillies and your connection there. Um, but I, I think that fun as a topic related to business, that it doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. And that in some circles, I think the world says you can't have fun at work. I disagree with that. I have a culturally led business, but it, perhaps that's a good place for you to launch off into what you've learned about fun and how you, I hate to say not modernized it, but you've really kind of bridged the gap into more employee wellness or, um, or happiness in, in a way. So hopefully that gives you a, a, an avenue from which to share a bit about, you know, the methods that you that you write about and that you talk about in your keynotes. Well, I think I went on the same path that that my audiences do and that our our clients do that are leadership uh, in leadership roles and trying to figure out how they engage their employees, show their employees um, and their teams that they care about them. We, I've gone through the same process because in the beginning, when we started the fund department, of which you know you were a part of that that rollout um, back in I guess she's seventy seven, and um, we I was concerned that people wouldn't understand why we were asking them to take a break um, and and play a little bit during their workday. They they'd say we're serious, Dave. We we've got work to do. And and then as I 
realize that as humans, we are we look forward to those breaks. Uh, but sometimes we think of fun as being subversive or naughty, um, uh, not in the right, not in its right place. Um, and what I've discovered is that that fun as a word is uh, understood in a certain context. And that context is generally, or in simple terms, is during off time, breaks and vacation. That's where it fits. We understand it. And um, the simplest way that I've been able to see the difference between fun and, and the realm where powerful fun sits is to ask people two questions. First, if you're listening, <clears throat> I want you to think in your, in your mind now, what do you do for fun? What's your go-to for fun? Most likely, the answers are are fitting in the area where fun sits in in the knowing form in in a known commodity, and that is uh, vacations, break time, friends, uh, you know, an adult beverage if if that's what you choose to do. Uh, maybe some competitive fun, maybe games, may, maybe uh, investing in some skill set or hobby. Um, and then what I do next is I say, tell me how fun can save your life. So the folks that come up with something now, if you're thinking, oh, I know what it is, that then you've you've been because of your life experience, you've been moved on a continuum closer to the more unknown commodity of fun, which is where powerful fun sits. So my whole job has been to get people to take uh, away from their instinct to think of fun as something that is only during off time and then pull it into an area and design and sharpen it as a skill set that you now can use during the worst of times. And that's counterintuitive because the worst of times or the brutality of life is, is something that you think very seriously about is how am I going to overcome that? And you start to work on your tools and the things that you would use and your mindset um, and all of the power that your brain has to help you overcome those, uh, those physical and mental challenges when the brutality of life visits you, you would not think fun sits there. But it is one of the most uh, powerful uh, tools or skill sets that you could invest in during that time. And you'll do all the others. You know, if if it's a physical illness, you're seeing your doctor, you're getting your therapy. Um, and But it is one of those tools along with those other things. And we just need to value it differently. Um, and so that's the work that I'm doing. That it's it's just shifting you from the from what you think you know about fun and putting it into an environment where you would not have thought fun being something that would be valuable. You know, Dave, in an era where life hacks and self improvement is is such, you know, it's so top of mind. It's in every quick article that hits my inbox in the morning. You know, you can journal for health. You can meditate for health. Make sure you walk or exercise, Dave. But the notion of having the ability to program yourself to bring a different mental state, some fun into it, is really interesting to me. And I, you know, hadn't even thought about that. But there, are, these are ways in which you manage life. Um, and that's a really interesting premise. Um, you yeah. know. I, I just, ahead. I really, I appreciate that comment so much, Chris, because that's how relatively simple it is. Like many things that are really powerful in life, it's simple uh, by design, but very, very difficult to master. But I always go to the simple effort. Like, oh, I haven't thought of that before. That makes sense. Let me see how personally I would invest in that. So 
just the you know this idea there are there are a couple of very simple ways to be happier that is to be get get eight hours of sleep at night and be physically active and eat right those all will help your brain function better which allows you to feel better and when you feel better physically you you are mentally happier and more content but those three things getting eight hours of sleep um, being able to eat right and to exercise, those are enormously difficult things to master. So it's always better to start with that simple comment like, oh, okay, I haven't thought about that way. This is how I might engage it. Um, that's where it starts. And then it, it just takes work like so, everything else that's worthwhile. Dave, it's interesting. I wanted to ask you how you felt your body of work fits a gratitude practice. Hmm. Have you already addressed that? Is that sort of, does that resonate? Yes, because that is one of the simple steps that, that's difficult to do. Expressing gratitude, um, and, and science backs this up, um, those people that express gratitude regularly have the opportunity to live longer than those who don't. Um, obviously, life can throw a curveball your way physically that you have no control over. But if you are expressing gratitude regularly, you have the opportunity to live a longer life than those who don't. And now that's that's what it does to your mental and physical side. Uh, it's it's simple by design. Again, like most powerful things in life is that you're you're just enjoying the things that you have instead of stressing over the things that you think that you need or want to acquire. Um, so. Uh, when you get up in the morning, you're grateful that you can actually get up. <laughs> you're breathing. Um, it's a great baseline. When somebody asks me how I'm doing, instead of tell me something good, I go, I'm alive. And they they laugh at that because it, it's meant to be a little bit fun and supposed to inspire a smile. But uh, expressing the gratitude that you can take a breath is really vitally important to go down to the, the most baseline important things. I'm alive. I can move. I can stand. I can hear, see, taste. I've got balance. Um, you know, those things many people actually don't have. Um, and those that, that don't have the basic, if I can take a breath, are not here to continue to experience this life that we have a blessing to be able to enjoy. I don't know if anyone's listening has ever tried to have a gratitude practice. I, uh, Dave, I think I've, I, I practice that. And I think I found that, you know, day one through day six were kind of easy. Uh, there was always something <laughs> that I could look at, but what I found is that the smaller detail of something like you're talking about, like, wow, I can get out of bed this morning. The more I thought I would just see something tiny, maybe the sunrise coming up over the, you know, the house or something. It didn't, I didn't need to have gratitude for big things. It was the little things around me that I hadn't noticed. Well, we are back. What does back mean? Well, the internet gremlins stopped a great conversation between Dave Raymond and myself. I'm Chris Burkhard. This is Outside Insights. We were having an incredible conversation about Dave, his past, uh, he was he was and is the original Philly fanatic, and he's a successful businessman with content around the power of fun. Dave, the Gremlins won, man, but we're not going to give up. We're back for round two. Well, they didn't win. You know, it, it was round one. You're right. So we'll we'll go for the knockout. <laughs> I guess you're right. We're uh, 
internet podcasters who got up off the mat and we're back for round two. Um, so Dave, as we kind of ease ourselves back in and our audience back in, I mentioned you've got a, a great book, The Power of Fun. It represents content that you speak to audiences in all kind of different ways and, and things, really just to get us back into this. Talk to, talk to us, uh, my audience, about how fun became relevant for you and, and cover some of your ideas around it, if you don't mind, just to get us going. Yeah, I think that, you know, my everything about my career could be described simply as unknowingly. Um, you know, I, uh, I think Bill Giles, who was really the brilliant mind behind the fanatic, was unknowingly following a process uh, that was shaped in his younger life. Um, and uh, and oh, it he speaks to your trust, my goodness. But I guess yeah. people trusted him flat out. <laughs> Yeah, they trusted him. And, and actually, the reason why they trusted him is what's so beautiful about the enlightened leadership of the Phillies was that the Carpenter family trusted Bill because they really cared nothing about um, the value added entertainment that surrounded the baseball game. Uh, the, the Carpenter family was only interested in Ruley and his father before him, Bob, just wanted to put together a great baseball team. So they were baseball people and they wanted to okay. put the best baseball team on on the field and they let Bill do whatever he wanted to do. And what they discovered was when Bill had failures, it was funnier for during the cocktail party when the staff would get together. So they were looking forward to Bill's failures. So as crazy or crazier that his ideas got, the the Carver family was like, yeah, go ahead. Because they, they were waiting for the next Kite Man, uh, which is anybody who's a fan of the I, Phillies knows about Kite Man. I think so, I might have been there as a young person. Uh, so, you know, and of course it's 2022, 2023 timeline. I, 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 I am a regional guy, mid-Atlantic Philly fan was there a lot in the seventies and eighties. And I had forgotten all that crazy stuff because it, it just doesn't happen like that today, but you're right. Every day was like, what's going to happen next? Yeah. And that was the, you know, that was the point that they valued fun. And, uh, you know, if you dive into Bill's background, you you understand that. And he told me in an interview that he had three demands of his new hires. One was you must enjoy what you're doing. you got to figure out a way to enjoy what you're doing. Two, you got to work hard, show up on time, be prepared. And his third one was the kicker. The third one says when you get to a point where you're hiring somebody, you have to demand the same three things of them. Um, so he... You know, he, he was a guy that was the spirit and a lot of the inspiration behind the Astrodome. And, and if anybody, it was, you know, seventh wonder of the world, first dome stadium. And he had put all these little Easter eggs in the Astrodome. That was his job in the design. He had to put these little surprises. And one of his, the one that he writes about in his book called Pouring Six Beers at a Time, which referenced to his work in minor league sports, he said that uh, they built a bar for a very exclusive VIP area and the designers made the bar slanted ever so slightly. So if you sat up to that bar, you felt like you had a couple of adult beverages before you did. You're like, wait a minute, is this place tipping? I don't. And, is it and me the, or the bar? That, that was what he was uh, was doing in his earliest ages. He grew up at Crosley Field where his father was an executive um, and he just learned this in, and he, it was innate. It was part of him. So when he created the fanatic, most everybody else thought it was a bad idea. Um, and 
cert, he got the guy who was young enough who didn't have the power to say no. <laughs> I just wanted to still have my job after a couple of years well, of interning. Dave, you were willing to try something and willing to change. You know, well, you weren't I, concerned about the status quo, right? Yeah, well, you know? I just well, I appreciate that, but truly, Chris, all I wanted to do was to keep my job. Um, oh, how about the, that? The deconst- what's in the book, The Power of Fun, is deconstructing a process that the Phillies did unknowingly. They did it naturally. And I think the things in nature that are happening naturally are the ones that are the most effective. Um, and it's the, it's survival of the fittest. It's all these things that happen because nature puts us in this environment and we have to decide whether we're going to make it or not. Um, and Bill was just following what he naturally knew was correct. So the FUN of fun, which are those th- which are the three main building blocks or foundational lessons of powerful fun are what that book outlines. And the reason why I knew it worked was I just started to go back and see what Bill did naturally and tried to define it in a lesson. And then those are the same lessons I used with people or organizations or sports teams or colleges and universities when they want to create a character brand or a mascot, we follow those same three basic lessons because they are, um, they are the guiding light to people who want to leverage fun and make it an important force in their lives, either when they're thriving in life or when they're being visited by the brutality of life. It's that's, what's so wonderful about this process, um, that it, that it's, it's about truth and authentic, um, nature of yourself and of your personality and it's designing you know the life that you want to live i certainly have an opinion on this question when you introduce this whether you're speaking whether it's with uh, a, a customer in the mascot business do they buy that methodology willingly or is it they do they just trust the Raymond brand to say, all right, all right, I'll do, I don't know what, uh, I got no choice because I don't know how to do this, so I'll just let you do, like, I can't imagine, it, it's 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 contrarian, you know? It's so obvious I like it, but it's a little contrarian. Yeah, I think that most of the time when people, here's the thing that we've done with, with our character branding business, we make, we make it a, a budgetary issue that if they decide that they're going to do it, the budget that they've committed to it demands that they pay attention. It's that simple. Um, and, and that's where it starts. So we all say that the, one of the very first components of developing this type of care, you know, this type of marketing, this character brand is a commitment by the organization. It has to be more than budget, but the budget is what gets their attention. So they say, okay, we're a hundred percent in, we're going to invest in Dave and we're going to get the best and brightest in our organization together. And we're going to listen. And then what I tell them, uh, I, I very early in my in my career, I walked into this environment where we were going to start this process, and they said to me, "Okay, Dave, what's it going to be? What's it going to look like?" And I I said, "I have absolutely no idea." And then, as a joke, but somewhat seriously, the leader said, "Well, why'd we hire you?" And everybody laughed. Wow. And I said, "And I said, well, because you hired me because I know." that you really know what's going to be right for you, but you haven't been asked the right questions yet. And you haven't taken a deep dive into a conversation about your story, about your history, about your dreams, about the urban myths and legends that have surrounded your company, your organization, your, who, you, who your community are, who your customers are, who the people you're trying to build. And we start there and I go, what the character looks like will be fourth on the list of priorities. 
because the work that you do in the first three will get you to the visuals. Um, and it is the same thing with the power of fun. It starts with a belief in something that we have discounted for our whole lives, and that is fun. Oh, okay, we do that when work's over. We do that as, to enhance when we're feeling well because, you know, gosh, you don't want to have fun when you're feeling bad, right? I mean, all of the, the, the contrarian or counter, counterintuitive feelings or thoughts about this have been wired into our brains in a certain way. So in essence, I'm going in with our clients and I'm going in with the people I speak to and I'm saying that we, we have to rewire your brain. We have to refresh your perspective and our brains are adaptive to that. When you're in your 90s, your brain is still malleable. It's still plastic. It's still you still can change habit loops and um, and and reconnect these neuro pathways that have been shut down because of either your belief or because of what's going on in your lives. Um, and I and we go all the way back to Bill taught this. Bill Giles taught this unknowingly, naturally. He was just being himself. He was telling you what he firmly believed. But he had success following that that process, um, and it and it is universal. That's why it works for developing uh, the fanatic. It worked for the Flyers developing gritty, and it also worked for me in in really pretty much saving my life because I had um, I had an intentional activity that I was required to do and getting paid to do it, and that intentional activity was actually the secret sauce to to keep me happy. I think it's. Fascinating to think about that you were able to look and see this pattern or methodology and then kind of, you know, you're the journalist that kind of wrote it out. I mean, obviously you experienced it. It was experiential for you. But I also like the notion that anybody listening, we we have a way we react in a situation to think that we could rewire ourselves in this and leverage something that's awful darn healthy for us uh, to just. The, the fact that we are more in control is is fascinating to me to think about. And I think that's a really great sort of mental soundbite for folks. But I want to weave in just a maybe a weird question. If it doesn't work, you answer whatever you want to answer. But I, I, I mean, Dave, I know, Philly Fanatic for 16 years, people ask you the same questions. And that's probably okay because that's amazing. But I, I'm curious, was the first day as the Fanatic – harder than the last day <laughs> well first of all the, the the way you introduce that question is um one of my favorite podcasters we've talked about is tim ferris he always does that he goes because i may be completely wrong with this and correct me if i'm wrong um and i don't know if i'm asking the right question but you just go with it how you want it i love that well thank you uh i'm a tim fan but it seems like the only way to be humble when you ask a darn question like, I don't, I mean, I, I, I put a lot of time into this, Dave, and I, I read your book and I listened to you, but I think we can have a great dialogue if I let you in kind of on what I'm thinking, but you know, it's, it's funny, but thank you. That's the ultimate because the, he's kind of a big deal. He yeah, is he's a big got, deal. And I, and he's I got 53 more sponsors than me. Cause I don't have any, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, we're going to have to change that after this episode. Um, yes. So, well, the, fr the first day was was easy be, you know once once bill um calmed my fears down because in the very beginning i was so excited about this all i could think of was that i was gonna i was getting paid to be a muppet and i said muppet because we were working with the folks who uh bonnie erickson who helped uh bill 
create the original design for the Fanatic. She was one of Jim Henson's original designers. She designed Statler and Waldorf, the two old men that argued in the balcony. Um, oh, she helped, the best. she helped design Miss Piggy. So, you know, we were getting the bet. I was so excited and the costume was delivered, but it was delayed in its delivery. So the first day that I tried it on was that evening was the first day I was going to wear it for the fans. And I had, I had given no thoughts about what I was doing. I was just, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to run out there in a costume. I get to be a Muppet. They're paying me to be a Muppet. But then I realized that uh, there wasn't really a plan on that very day. I realized no one had told me what I was supposed to do. And and Bill was intentional with that because one, he didn't want to freak me out because then he felt like, well, if I tell him, well, don't do this and be careful about this and you know our fans and this could happen. And, you know, he didn't want to do that. So when I knocked on his door at his office that day, I asked him, I said, the costume fits great. It looks better than I even thought it would look. You know, what do you want me to do? Like, I'm all ready for my, my direction. Hey, boss. My, yeah, give my me direction. my th- what? Give me my two or three things right now. Yeah, yeah because, you know, here, here's uh, Spielberg is going to tell. I, I get to play this role. What am I going to do, <laughs> Mr. Spielberg? And I said, and I didn't know, honestly, I'm looking back at that. I didn't know that that is kind of the frame that I was in, that I was an actor asking for somebody to tell me who it was I was about to play. What were the important things? And, and Bill looked at me like nonplussed, like he had no idea. And he didn't care that he didn't have an idea. He was just like looking at me like, ah, and then I, and then Boy, he that's saw confidence right there. Yeah, yeah, that's well, confidence. Well, exactly. Cause, because he had done this before. And honestly, he didn't necessarily care if it didn't work because he knew that sometimes those, uh, those concepts that didn't work like kite man actually became marvelously successful because of the failure. But I'm, I'm the lamb. <laughs> like, well, look, I, yeah, I have a little bit of fear that this is going to fail because how is it going to fail? You know, am I going to, am I going to get yeah. brutalized? Are they going to rip the costume off of me? Are they going to set like, me on fire? I, I, Bill, you know, you're going to learn a lot through this, but I'm going to be the failure. Exactly. Like, uh, yeah. Right. And I wasn't really thinking too much like that, but I did. I, when I saw that he didn't really in his facial expressions knew to how to answer the question, I turned white. I got, then I really was immediately frightened. And he stopped me when he saw that because it was this non Dave, how old were you? I was 22. Yeah, everybody's thinking about where you are. If you're 22, congratulations. It's the best you're ever going to feel, right? But, uh, but imagine, did, did, I'm sorry, I'm layering questions is, did it feel like, um, a mask you could hide behind or did you feel like everybody could see Dave Raymond? No, I didn't even, I hadn't even, you know, it's so, this is so perfect for the way Bill was part of this is I just hadn't even gone there. I, all I could hear in my, in my ears, my father was saying, as he told me when he helped me get the job, he said, just put your head down, do whatever they ask you to do, because then you'll prove your value. And then, and then once you prove your value, you're good. But if you start, you know, deciding what you thought you might do. And, hey, they're asking you to do something that you don't really want to do. You just got to do it. And so that's was in my head. And that's then easy, I was, Dad, except he told me just to go have fun. Well, but that but that was the, the that was the wonderful moment, because in again, remember, I'm 22 years old. I'm still in college. He here's here. This is what I was thinking. And the reason why I ran out of his off, office after that with no fear, he looked at me, and said, David, really, honestly, your focus is to have fun, because. If you're not having fun, then the output, whatever the fanatic becomes, is not going to be funny. And he needs to be funny in front of our fans. So go have fun. Well, that, then I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm getting paid to be a Muppet. 
um, the costume looks, I mean, it's like the best Halloween costume you could ever have. I'm like, oh my gosh. It and it's like custom fit to it you. It fit me like a glove. And I'm like, okay, this is good. And then now my job is to have fun. I'm a college student. I'm a, I'm a professional funster. <laughs> I know all about this. And as a, and this is the way it happened. He saw my face change from fear to incredible enthusiasm with a grin on my face, you know, ear to ear. And I go tearing out of his office and he yelled at me very quickly, G rated fun, David, G rated fun. Because then oh, he, he thought, he said, Oh, he's a college student. Wait, wait, wait. I gotta wait, I have, wait, wait. Yeah. I have to put some editing in there. And that was really the only direction that I ever got from him. Um, I, the direction that I received from him after that was, Hey, what do you think? Why don't you go try this? Um, and if I made a misstep, he wouldn't come in and say, don't ever do that again. He'd say, why did you do it? And this is, this is the, my boss's boss. This is the guy that is, in essence, in is one of the main executives who, who grows up to owning the Phillies from there. And, um, and he's asking my opinion. The, the trust that that developed in, in him towards me made me think I can't screw up this trust. Look, he, there, here's a guy that should not be, if he, if he was in my mind, he'd be like, don't trust Dave. You know, Dave's, Dave's a loose cannon. And I realized, well, I, I really have to make sure I'm on point. So I listened to him. We collaborated. And in a few months, this, there was a personality that I had created to fit my brain and his direction. And then it was easy. So, the, the harder day was the last day because I wasn't sure, well, how am I going to feel about leaving the greatest job on the planet that, frankly, I was tired of doing? You know, I'd, I'd played a role for 16 years, and I wanted, I wanted to be in control. Um, being of, an actor on a show for 16 years, right? Yeah. I, there's know? a lot of – there's so many re, uh, relationships between – any actor anywhere in this world and what I was doing yet in the beginning, I was never thinking of it that way. I just think physically I was challenged and I was going to overcome this physical yeah. challenge. I wasn't thinking I was acting. I had no concept that I was a master at nonverbal communication because of my relationship with my mother, which is an, another story we'll get into, I'm sure. But um, I just thought, matter of fact, when it started to become a big thing, Chris, I didn't want anybody else to get in the costume, no matter how hard it was for me to do appearance after appearance, because I thought they could find somebody that could do stupid for less money than I was doing it. <laughs> I just well, didn't think it was, you know, that I had any that, skills. That. that even you don't even know your worth or your value or your capabilities in that. So were you the kid that did plays at home for the family? Were you a theater major in high school? I mean, did you do Brigadoon at, you know, in high school or anything like, or, you know? Uh, it's a marvelous, it's a marvelous question and, and astute of you to think of that. But here's what was funny. I, I think if, if you believe in previous lives, I think I probably was some sort of a performer in a previous life because I would be walking in the hallways in high school and I was, I was a jock. You know, I grew up with a football coach. I played baseball and football. Um, that's all I cared about. My whole dream was to grow up and play football for Delaware. That's all I wanted to do. I had no thought about education. Dave, Dave's dad might have been, well, let's just say the best coach in the history of the state of Delaware. And, uh, you know, now he, I'll say it and you could just say amen was, or whatever you want to well, do. I, I'll, I'll, uh, when we get to him, I'll tell you even more about 
how amazing he was in, in the, in the football world. But in any event, that was all my focus. And when I would walk past the theater area, excuse me, <clears throat> and I would see all of the theater kids, I would be thinking, my first thought is, gosh, I'd really like to do that. But then I would look at them and go, but they're so weird. <laughs> they're so, I can't, I can't be in that group, you know, cause in your, in that age in high school, you, you need, you need to have your group. You need to fit in your group and any, anything outside of that was, was too hard for you to imagine. And really, truly what I should have done, I, I sang in choir and when, and I had a pretty good voice and the, and, uh, Mr. Rittenhouse, our, our, uh, music teacher came to me and said, I want you in concert choir. I said, Oh, I'd love to be in concert choir. What do I have to do? He said, well, you have to read music. And I said, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and right. I walked away, I walked away from choir and I would have learned how to read music and I, and I would have been in theater and I would have learned about performance. Now, I also believe that if I did those things, I probably wouldn't be, you know, working for the Phillies as an intern in 76 and 77 and wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to, to perform as the fanatic because as, as Bonnie and her partner Wade told me when I asked, should I take acting lessons after I'd been doing this for a half a year? They said, no, acting lessons will just screw you up. <laughs> You're doing this naturally well. And, and again, there was a hidden skill set which in part of our training and power of fun training, we talk about people going back in their lives and are there undiscovered skill sets that you're not engaging in or not giving yourself credit for. Um, it was such at such a revealing exercise for people to do, especially high performers. Um, so, so to, to circle back the, the first day was easy after Bill said your job was to have fun. And then he gave me, you know, the, the box I had to live in was G-rated fun, and that was all I needed. And and that those first few weeks were just incredible. The only negative part of that was how hard physically it was, and I and I hadn't really prepared myself to imagine that I wouldn't that I would be taxed by doing this physically because I thought I was I was in great shape, but there was nothing like working in that costume. But that it's was a only different a, kind of shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And and once that Chris, once that month was done. I was in shape. I knew what to expect. I knew how to take breaks. I knew all the things I needed to do um, physically. And it just kept making me more physically prepared. And um, and then so the rest of it was just just so much fun, so much um, uh, creative, creative energy, both with me and with the ground crew and people around me. Uh, the fanatic was a uh, was just became just as famous as Gritty did. But but it took a while for the world to know about the fanatic, but Philadelphia went crazy for him. Um, you're, I was you're going not, to appearances you're not that kidding. Had canceled. There, I had to go to appearances that got canceled because too many people showed up. Um, it was, it was just, you um, were, you were kind of famous at that point. Yeah, they, no, take it, no, take I it. wasn't. I wasn't. Oh, the, I know the guy in was. this. <laughs> I took the costume off. Nobody knew who I was. That, that was a beauty. Well, that event. must, that anonymity must've been, I, good and bad. Take it wherever you want, Dave. I think we've laid some things out. So I know there's yeah, some, I think some important not, things you want to lay out. It was never, uh, it, the, the anonymity was, was not bad 95% of the time uh, because I, in, I enjoyed that. And I could at any moment tell somebody what I did for a living and, and, and become a celebrity for that moment. Um, and then the Phillies decided it was important for us to accept media exposure, but we didn't want to show the fanatic half in and half out. So that's where they determined that, David, you are now the fanatic's best friend. And it's a wink and a nudge. You know, uh, you know, we know that Santa is real. Right. So we. Right. We, we better, just, you better we, believe today. 
Right. Because you believe or you don't receive. So we, we were doing that for the kids. It was a wink and a nudge. And, um, and so I had the ability to become a personality outside of the costume. So I had my own role. It was accepted and I got great media training because of it. Um, and so for the most part though, people didn't know me. They knew the fanatic is and the way it, the, who the fanatic was. And it was a whole different being than what my being was. And, uh, uh it was the, my, my uh, reminder of how important the fanatic was and less important I was, was when my buddies were encouraging me to tell the guy who was monitoring a line to get into a brand new restaurant in Philadelphia that was the hippest joint. And there was a line about a half a block long and it was cold. And my buddies kept saying, well, tell them who you are. I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not saying, hey, do you know who I'm not doing that? And they kept bugging me. And finally, the, the guy walked by with a headset and I said, hey, hi, how are you? Come on over. I said, my, my name's Dave Raymond. Uh, I'm the guy that inside of the fanatic costume. He goes, oh, what? Really? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Hey, hey, Dave, how you doing? Nice to meet you. My name is John. And and I said to him, uh, you know, I just wondered maybe we could get in there. He goes, yeah, yeah, you just stay right here in line. Eventually you'll get in. And, and my buddy's like, we told you you weren't special. We told you you were nobody. And I'm like, oh, so, you know. However, if, if you were in costume. Yeah, in costume, they would have, I walked into Studio 54 during the heyday dressed as a fanatic. They let me right in. So, Didn't you know, there, really? there was a uh, but that doesn't sound like G-rated fun, though. Are we able to talk about that? Uh, oh, say again uh, now. I'm sorry, I missed is, that. That sounds like G-rated. Uh, is, that doesn't sound like G-rated fun potentially. Well, uh, it, as I would tell Richie Ashburn every time he would uh, have me on his pregame show and say, "I bet you get away with murder in that costume," I'd remind <laughs> him. I'd remind Richie that he was a children's character, and the fanatic would never do those things. And that truly, I was driven by that character. When, when I went into Studio 54, the most amazing thing was there was about a thousand people outside. And it was only 10, 10, 10, 15 at night, maybe 1030 in New York. It's early. So there's a thousand people outside. I got in, there were about 20 people in this gigantic club. And that was the whole point. They, they just didn't let people in to not, to make it more special. So I was in there running around. There, there was only about, uh, 50 people I was entertaining. Uh, and I just loved to dance. So the fanatic loved to dance. So there was a lot of dancing that my, my heyday of the disco era, which ages me, um, was a marvelous time for dancing. It was the precursor to, uh, dancing with the stars, you know, the, all sure. the, all the dances that dancing with the stars is, it has its roots, uh, from, disco and beyond. So, um, yeah, so, so the anonymity, anonymity for me, as it turned out was a blessing because, you know, I could, um, I could just turn it off if I wanted to. And that, and, and I had the ability to turn it on at times for a joke or for fun. And, and it's been, um, it was the best part of being famous so was Dave, nobody, knew, the... nobody knew me. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like that would be Convenient at times, but if you need to get into a bar, not so helpful, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so, impress my buddies. One of the things I liked about, I listened to one of your keynotes and I read your book and enjoyed it, is you're very open and honest in in your your talk of how your journey as both the fanatic and in understanding the power of fun, how it really got you through tough times. So if you'd like to speak about that, I'm sure my audience would love to hear what you yeah, think. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and I love doing it because I get to celebrate my mom. Um, 
in the beginning of my keynote, I talk about wanting to be my hero, which was my dad. And when I get to the subject matter, I said, yeah, but we stood on the giant shoulders of Susie Raymond. Uh, it's my dad so affectionately referred to mom. Um, but, you know, she um, she was old school. You know, my my dad uh, proposed to her and said, hey, I want to raise my career. Will you come and and I want to build my career where you come and raise our family. And it was in the forties. So it, it worked. And mom was, you know, she was tough, man. She could, um, she could strike fear in your heart when you were doing something, uh, that, that she knew was wrong or bad, oh, for you. but Dave, she you never did anything wrong. Yeah. Well, I was the youngest, so I probably got away with more because they were just, you know, the youngest, you kind of let them just go. Oh, well, they're tired um, at that point. They just, yeah, you know. so they, that's right. They're like, yeah. And I think there's a, there's, there's a lesson there because it's sometimes the youngest kid is the one who behaves the most because they go, Hey, they're letting me, they're letting me off the leash. I better not make mistakes. There's something to be said when you have no leash. It's amazing how you honor the space that you're given. Yep. And, uh, and I, again, at the relationship to that I had with Bill Giles was the same. But so my mom comes to Delaware. She left Michigan early. My parents uh, both were going to Michigan and they met there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so she left her education to follow my dad. She gets to Delaware. She finished her education, Delaware. Um, and uh, at the age of 29, she had gone. She became a, a deaf woman, like a snap of a finger from a hearing woman to a deaf woman because of Meniere's syndrome. And I was three years old and, um, you know, she went back to school at Delaware, got her degree, uh, got an advanced degree in, in counseling and social work, became a certified interpreter for the deaf and and really did amazing things with the deaf community. Uh, it was Stirk School at the time. It's it's uh, the Delaware School for the Deaf now. Um, wonderful environment. She was teaching deaf kids that being deaf was no excuse not to be a whole and complete person. And, um, you know, loved her for that. But, I, you know, this is where I discovered my the skill set that helped me create the fanatic was really my mom's responsibility because well, as being deaf, she would wear a hearing aid. And it was clipped to her bra and it was like the old Belltel hearing aid, about twice the size of a, a Bic lighter. Mm -hmm. And uh, had an on and off switch at the top and the, and the wire would come out of her blouse and she'd have an earpiece. And the audiologist would tell her, this isn't going to help you. This, you won't hear Susie. You're going to, you're going to have amplified sounds. So you need to be in front of people. You'll read their lips. Those ampl amplified sounds will help you read lips a little bit better. And you'll be able to communicate very well if you work at it. And she was great at it. And as a three-year-old kid, I was dancing in front of her all the time, trying to get her attention and realized I could, I could um, entertain her. Um, and then later in life, you know, as a teenager, both my sister and brother were out of the house going to school and it was just me and her. And, and I had made some mistake on a Friday night. She took away the car and I was supposed to pick up my, my buddies to get them to the dance. And I'm yelling at her like, you can't take the car away from me. And she turns the click, turns off her hearing aid <laughs> and would walk away from me. And I said, that's, that's when the fanatics personality would, would, uh, was created because I started moving and getting in front of her and non-verbally going, you know, trying to get her attention, say, you can't do that to me. And um, so my mom really, ins I believe, because of that skill set, inspired, you know, the personality that is entertaining, you know, more than 80 million fans and counting around the world. And um, it was just when she turned 59, so just 30 years after she lost her hearing, um, she was diagnosed with a grade four glioblastoma brain tumor. And to say that my life and, and Chris, you know Newark, Delaware. It, it was a it was right out of Leave It to Beaver. I mean, 
um, you know, I remember my mom was young. She would she would wear uh, Mrs. Cleaver's dress. I mean, it, oh, and, from the country club on Saturday night yeah. to the Main Street with shops to the and university, the, the kind of oh, you're right, everything. It was and and my life truly, we hadn't there was nobody uh, close to our blood relative family that had passed away. There was no, there was just no struggles. Everything was just blissfully wonderful in my life, and. You know, we have a, we get together as a family and the doctor, I didn't even know how sick she was. I just knew she wasn't feeling well. And it was in the, in the spring. So I was in the middle of my season and, and, and dad was uh, doing, uh, uh, I guess it was late summer and he was in summer practice. And, um, we got, this doctor was going to tell our family how we could help our mom. And I just thought, you know, okay, they, they ruled out the bad stuff. That was the last thing that we were told. And we're just going to have a conversation about what's going on. And, you know, he just flat out looked at us and said, your mom's got a, uh, this glioblastoma brain tumor. It's half the size of my fist. And it's in an area of the brain that we can't reach. And your mom has eight months to live, right? Just dumped it that on us like that. And the, the thing I remember the most about that meeting was looking at my mom and she had this look of acceptance on her face. And I realized, oh, she's old school. She was always old school. That her life started old school fashion. Her life with my dad, and and that was so. She was know, accepting was, of the authority and of what what the diagnosis was. It, and, it, it was like and her Lord, fate. It was like the Lord spoke. Um, and and she passed away. I mean, almost twenty four hours, uh, eight months later, twenty four hours to the day of that diagnosis, she passed away. And at the at the time that you're getting hit with this, it's surreal. I remember visiting her in the hospital as the fanatic. I mean, I, I was doing all these things that my relationship with her really grew during that time. Cause you know, we worked, uh, you know, we worked together. We talked together. I, I introduced her to exceptional cancer patients. Dr. Bernie Siegel, um, was a, on the forefront of the mind body connection and he was a surgeon. And so we really had a, a, probably the closest relationship we had in our lives during that time. And then she passes away and I figure I had a young wife, seven years. My son, Kyle, was born. He was three months old. And my mom had dedicated, I'm going to hang around until, you know, I see your son born. And she did that. And and then just. Oh, she's old school. Of course she did. Yeah. And she and she was. And that was, you know, motivating to her. And um, and it was it was a, a wonderful time, actually, during that time. And then and when she passes away and we have her memorial service. And, and just in three weeks later, my marriage just completely d dissolved, which those types of stressors actually open up wounds that you weren't sure were there or didn't know. And I was, um, I was in the worst shape ever. I was, I was in the, the state of hopelessness and I was ready to quit my job. I was telling the Phillies I need to very least clear my schedule of appearances. I had one appearance I had to do. I was in Wilmington uh, in that house I lived in, um, all those years up in Dahlfield Drive, all the years I was with the Phillies, and I was in a ball on the kitchen floor um, with great certainty that I was not going to survive this. And when I talked to Mary Carrillo on HBO about this, she said, oh, you were thinking about suicide. And I said, yes, right away. And I immediately wanted to take it back, Chris, because I'm like, I, I hadn't told it to anybody. No one in my family, um, my wife, Sandy, of 28 years, I had never said that to her. And I felt dirty. I felt like I wanted to take a shower. And in that moment, I was experiencing what's happening today is people who are struggling, 
You don't know that because they're not sharing it. And they could be in an area of hopelessness where they're thinking about this and making it a very real, it was a very real decision for me because I knew that would just stop all this pain because it was the, the sorrow and it's like, it's like chains wrapped around your neck like a yoke and it's just dragging you physically down towards the ground. And I went and did that appearance, Chris, the one that I had to do where it was my, it was my benchmark moment. Cause I said, I'm going to go finish this appearance. I've already told the Phillies I'm out and I'm going to come home and take care of this. And I got in the costume and there's, when you, when I would put the helmet on, there's chin straps and you would snap the chin straps, like any football helmet. And it, it would, many times it would make a ringing in my ear cause it would snap and it close to my ear. It would ring. And that moment was the departure of my personality and the fanatic just completely took over as it always did, but I hadn't really thought about it. And I went for two hours and it was the first time since my mom had passed and all the struggles I was having with the relationship with my son and my, um, you know, my wife at the time. And, it went away. It just like disappeared. <laughs> and I'm running around and people are laughing at me. They're hugging at me, yelling, Hey, I love you, Philly fanatic. And, and I realized, Oh my gosh, this is it. This is making me feel better. And when I got out of the costume within a few hours, I was in a de depressive state still, but I hadn't gone. I, that was the day I went, no, you know what? I'm going to tell the Phillies I want to keep doing this. So you I kind of them turned said, a corner. Yeah. Don't ca cancel those. And they said, are you sure? I said, yes, this is what I really want to do. Um, I had, Within a week, I, the idea of taking my own life as a solution was laughable. I'm like, I can't, I, that's when I started to disregard. Oh, I didn't really, I wasn't really there. I don't, I would never do that. Well, that's what I've learned from talking to people who have gone through this, that that's the case. And so the year, the, that day turned into a week and the weeks into months and months into a year. And, and today uh, in front of our, my audiences, I just with great joy talk about my mom and what she did, what she did, not only for the deaf community, but what she did for millions and millions of people all over the world, because the fanatic is continuing to do the work that started with the creation of that personality. I gave myself credit for this nonverbal communication because of my work with my mom and said, hey, I really am good at this. And not only did it save my life, it really allowed me to start saying, hey, you know what? You're pretty good at this. This isn't something that happened by accident. Bill Giles didn't just pluck you out of obscurity. He he knew uh, innately, like he did many things, that this was the right <clears throat> person to give the opportunity to. And um, and it wasn't until, you know, I'm 66, Chris. It, it isn't until just a few years ago that I really, truly have decided I was responsible for some of that success. Um, and well, thank lot, God you came to that reality check. So so first thing, Dave, this whole idea of these discussions is about help people figure out how to get the life they want. And I just want to give you real credit. I mean, I find I lead people, you talk to people, it's still very uncomfortable for the world to talk about mental health. And the fact that you, you are honest and open may give someone else permission to be open and honest. And frankly, you share how you found your way out, which is 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 super critical to all of this. Well, to, I think, I think and it's I, amazing. Not, not to interrupt, I want to. Uh, it's I, all good. You hit on something really important because what I want to make sure everybody <laughs> understands is I was lucky. I was so lucky because I never would have found the support if I didn't have the fanatic to to really. He was the one that 
that turned it around for me. I would never have thought of speaking to a professional. I would have never talked to anybody in my family to tell them what I was thinking about doing. I wouldn't have ever done that. And so to, to make sure people know that is listening, that are listening to this, that the very first thing you need to do is find somebody that you trust, that you know, cares about you, that you, and have the courage to share it. Um, if you don't have a mental health care professional, when you're feeling, when you're in that depressive state, you need to find somebody or get to a mental health care professional. And there's all kinds of hotlines now, online, um, uh, phone numbers that you can research and call to get this help. And that's, that's the thing I want to make sure everybody hears that I didn't have any of that. And, and I was blessed and lucky to be in that position where I had another personality to take charge and realize that's my intention. My intentional activity at that point was, um, which is what we talk about. You have to design intentional activities that help distract you even doing, or mostly during the most difficult times in your life. The fanatic was that distraction was that flow state. Um, and I was getting paid to do it. So, uh, you know, my, my savior was something that when I went and did it, I got, I was actually getting rewarded financially because it was my job. So I just want to make it clear to everybody else who is listening to this, who may know somebody or is are feeling this way themselves, that they've got to seek help and they have to try to drum up the courage to tell somebody this is what's happening. Dave, we'll put a couple of links in, uh, you know, the intro of this podcast as it releases, uh, just add it as a value add. But I think your your point is terrific. I think we've talked about this, but are, have you have you done a lot of reading of Ma- Malcolm Gladwell and Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell and the outliers? Yeah. I, in, it, what's amazing is your story of working with your mom and being animated. It's a very much an outlier situation for you to develop that skill and then be in a costume and then of course excel at it because of that early exposure. It's that's really just it's just a sidebar, but it's a really interesting kind of situation. He's my he he's I, I love him as an author because <clears throat> excuse me, because he is he's writing about in the sociology and the science and but he but he's a great writer. Um Outliers, Blink was also a favorite outliers and and, and um Goliath, David know, Goliath is, David Goli- oh my goodness, what? Yeah, just what? wonderful stuff. And so, you know, he says it's 10,000 hours of practice. Well, you know, my practice from my mom's first losing her hearing until uh, really 25 years of me working in costume non-verbally, I, I've, had, I've had well over 10,000 hours of practice. Access, so dad knows, you know, Tubby Raymond knows the Carpenter family. He had gotten some of his other football players internships uh, with the Phillies. And he was saying, Hey, let me give my son a different perspective that would move him away from thinking that college football coaching was the only thing that, or, or football coaching could be the only thing for his, for him as an opportunity for a career. Um, so I had that access. And then there was a, a measure of luck. I was there at the right place at the right time. And then the most important thing that I didn't give myself credit for, I was uniquely designed to do this well. And so it, it is a, you know, it, it's that, perfect storm to use a trite phrase of, of all those wonderful opportunities coming together, which is exactly what, um, outliers is all about. Um, and it's, it, it's, it was wonderful to read that book. because like, I'm reading about, Oh my gosh, this is, this is, exactly this is me. What happened to me. Yeah. Well, we haven't talked about that. I just came to that conclusion, which is kind of interesting serendipity. So we're coming up on a little over an hour. 
And I don't know if you'd prefer to summarize what you want the audience to know about Power of Fun, or if you'd like to weave in some of the lessons that the fanatic teaches. Uh, but if you were to have a platform to summarize what you want people to take from your experiences and from what you do, what would you want them to react to? Well, I think the most important thing is what we struggle with from a marketing standpoint every day is that people underestimate, undervalue, and don't understand the word fun. They get it. So it's a, and from the marketing perspective, hey, power of fun. Well, we get that. It's fun. We're going to love that. And then when you say, well, you know, we're, we're doing bigger things with it. There's, there, well, I don't understand. So I want everybody to, as they're listening today, I'm going to ask two questions and let's see what type of answers you might write down in a piece of paper. Um, what do you do for fun? And so if someone were to ask me that question, I said, well, I love golf. Uh, it's been one of those lifetime activities that I enjoy, um, time with my family, um, a really, really well-made uh, old-fashioned, which just you put a cherry oh. and, a, and a piece of orange in with no simple syrup and you put two shots of bourbon. That's my old That's my are you, old. Are you a little bit of sweet vermouth? Or? Nah, I, I try, no, I just, it's like the same uh, thing with the martini. You, you wave the bottle of vermouth. Understood. Yeah. Uh, um, it happens to be one of my favorites too. So, exactly. so uh, yeah, so um, we, you and I would talk about this adult beverage and what we like and how we make it. And that's fun. Right. And it's usually for off time, <clears throat> excuse me, off time and vacations. We did not have them before this no. shooting. If anybody's <laughs> wondering, we're, yeah, yeah, we're that terribly was, sober. That was yeah. not the, those were not the gremlins <laughs> that we experienced when we started. Um, oh. so, so as we have that conversation, and people are listening. Then I say very quickly, how can fun save your life? And, you know, certainly I discussed how it worked for me. And those answers are, are more towards the focus that we want you to be. So we look at um, fun as, as the known commodity. And we're trying to, there, there's a doing gap between known fun and unknown fun. And the doing gap is the work that you have to go get to to be able to engage powerful fun. And the simplest of way of describing, well, how do we get there? There's a lot of work that you need to do, which is like any great important thing in life. You have to really work hard at it. But the FUN of fun, fun is a force. And you, we want you to believe that fun is a force. And it's not just something that you do to make a great old fashioned, right? And, and to get together with buddies. It really is something that you can engage during the, when the brutality of life visits you. You in the FUN of Power Fund stands for universal, which means I was asked as the fanatic to do multiple funerals. And my joke was, yeah, the fanatic puts the fun in funerals. And it, and truly I saw how magical it was and how it worked, not only at funerals, but in hospital rooms where families were dealing with the reality that their son or daughter was not going to survive what was attacking their body. But when the fanatic would show up in that hospital room, it would be a celebration. And I would sit and I did a General Electric Polymer Engineers Convention, working at Hickory Hill during a Kennedy family, private Kennedy family gathering. The fanatic was there because Ethel Kennedy wanted him to be the referee during their sports contest so they wouldn't get angry at each other. Supreme Court justices, private chambers, and on and on and on, the fanatic would make these appearances. And there is no place that fun would not be an, ad an addition to make you reach your goal, overcome your challenge more quickly, more effectively, and efficiently. 
It's when you discard it and say it's only for fun times is the mistake you're making. And then the N in the FUNA fund stands for the word no. And, and that's because leadership or people in charge, when you say, hey, we're going to have some fun here, they'll go, whoa, 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 wait, what are you talking about? Well, this is serious business. So what I do, I go take the word fun and put serious before it. Because when a leader, leadership or anybody in charge or people who are ready to say, no, we're not doing that here. When they hear serious fun, they stop and go, well, okay, what do you mean? And then you tell them what the ROI might be. You know, imagine that we can celebrate your grandfather's life much more in a more meaningful way for us to have a moment where we're supposed to be celebrating and enjoying and putting music on and dancing um, and bringing things that he loved into this celebration that might not be anybody else's idea, but is perfect for him. So, so you have to work at it. So it's serious fun. That means, okay, if it's serious, we've probably done some study. We've done some work. We've do creative and innovative design to make fun fit in a, in a place where you wouldn't think it would be appropriate. And then I end after I tell that the stories and those lessons and, and outline those lessons, I go, if it works at a funeral, can you think, and it works well at a funeral, then, and it belongs in a funeral. If it belongs there, then where else could you think in life that it wouldn't be part of it? And it's not the only thing. It's not a single source solution. And it's not a hand buzzer and a whoopee cushion. Although that, if you design it for a particular place, you go, a whoopee cushion and a hand buzzer is perfect for this moment. Um, you know, so you have to understand that this process is one of the things that you do to be great. You know, you have to show up on time. You got to be prepared. You got to do the hard work. Um, you know, you, you've got to be in the right place when you're required to be there. But you also need to always think, well, how can fun help this? How can this grease the wheels a little bit more? How can this be a little bit more fuel to make the engine uh, work a little bit more efficiently? It's when you discard fun because you think, oh, no, this isn't the right time for fun. That's the, that's the one where you put your hand up to, yeah, it is. Let's talk about it. Um, and, and then when the brutality of life visits you, you've already figured out how you use it to overcome that challenge. Um, and then it's the same process that you use when life throws you the good stuff. And that's what I love about it. It's just so malleable, just like your brain. It's malleable. It's plastic. You can mold it and change it. And it's always there for you. It's not there if you discount it and keep it over on the side of the known commodity of fun. So I hope I didn't go too long, but no, that, no, absolutely that's at not. the heart of what I'm trying to but talk it, about. But it, so I'll, I always like to ask the how to, the practical. So knowing you just laid out your curriculum, fun. I, I was thinking in my head, I'm kind of funny. As a leader, I run a fun business. I have a, it's even funny that I think I'm funny, right? I mean, and that's <laughs> all that matters. I mean, if you think about it, but I have a fun loving culture. I think I get away with it when I facilitate sometimes, but I know what it, so if, if I'm a, a young leader and I want to apply this to my team, what do I do? Do oh, I, I read, that. do I read your book? Do I call you? And it wasn't a setup for your content so much as I think people actually are going to buy into what you're saying and not know what to do. Yeah. And that's absolutely correct. And that's why I have a slide for everybody. And it, so it's about intentional activities, whether you're as a leader and you're working with your team or you're trying to boost your own mood, uh, the intentional activities um, are what you need to focus on. And 
I like to say, you know, I love to skydive, and Chris, you're frightened to death of heights. So the two intentional activities that you and I would choose. That's true. So you have to get in inside of your, you have to ask your people, hey, what would, what would you think we could do in and around our work that would make it more enjoyable for you? And then you listen, and then you start to activate the things that you know will be accepted as the whole group. Because somebody says, oh, we're going to have clothing optional Tuesdays. And while that's a great idea, Sam, we can't do that. It's not appropriate, right? So, yes. but there, but Sam will also come up with a couple that the rest of the organization decides that's yeah, they all are, are suggesting those types of things, and you do it. Um, you know, Ted Lasso does that thing where he has the, uh, you know, all the players thinks as they say he's a wanker, and they're not listening <laughs> to him. He's, he's some yank who who, who coaches uh, uh, American football, and he's coming and he's trying to manage us we're, we're professional soccer players and he gives them a suggestion box and 90% of them you're a wanker you're a double wanker you're and he's pulling this and one says the um, the shower pressure is for shit and he, he he lights up and goes to coach beard his his partner in crime and says ooh i think we can do something and he actually fixes the shower pressure and that's when the players start to go well maybe this guy isn't so bad you know they made fun of him they you know so th this concept of um listening to your people and then activating what it is that they suggest. And then as a leader, you need to invest in the, and, and I'm going to give you some suggestions, but they have to be designed for you. Uh, start your meetings and say, um, we say TMSG. Don't ask them how they're doing. Don't ask them how their day is going. Don't ask them how their weekend went. Say, tell me something good. And then they're forced to give you a positive answer because I believe when you ask somebody, how are you doing? You just gave them the permission to dump on you because our brains are focused on all this negative garbage that's in our, and we have a tendency just to, you know, spew that out unless you're asked to, for a, for a positive response and tell me if something. You do good. nothing else that Dave said, just do that. Yeah. It's simple. And you, and you know, what I love is if, if people who, who are, you know, who, who want to be a little snarky, go find the curmudgeon in your life. The person that you know is never happy. He's Eeyore, right? You go to your Eeyore in your life. Everyone knows one and go to them and say, tell me something good and watch the nonverbal show. Cause they, they get, Oh, yeah, oh wait, oh, wait. Cause they, cause you are asking to do something that's totally counter to what's in their heart. And when they finally come up with something good, like, Hey, I'm alive, I'm breathing. Um, that's actually really uh, a, a wonderful piece of gratitude that you can express. And it, those conversations end up being really positive one, because then you want to share your something good. Everybody does. And it becomes a better question, a better conversation. And so if you do that with your team, before you start your financial review meeting, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good time. And it gets everybody in the room. Yeah. It's, and no, no, I, I, I am totally on board with that. It works. Uh, I, I, it, I'm a big fan of it. And obviously, we started this. Um, I think, you know, you, the world doesn't probably, not everybody's seen this, but I, I thought your Jimmy Kimmel piece <laughs> was hysterical. And I guess that's my way of giving you a couple minutes of fame here because you've had, I think you had some neat stuff. But if, if, if our, my audience wants to find you and watch that Jimmy Kimmel, uh, piece or read your book or hire you. Um, it's okay because this is part of it. I mean, obviously, uh, well, how does everybody reach you, Dave? But the easiest way is to go to DaveRaymondSpeaks.com. 
Um, it is where you can respond to us through a, a, a contact form. Uh, I do a monthly newsletter that comes out for, uh, every last Friday of the month at 5.30, and it's the, ticks, the, the tips, the tricks, the hacks on, on how to build sustainable happiness. Um, you can only buy my book there because Jeff Bezos does not need any more money. So I agree I, with you. I made a decision that this is self-published for my clients and the people who believe or want to know more about how they can build sustainable happiness in their lives. So it's there. Um, the newsletter, actually, if you sign up for the newsletter, you get a free chapter of the book. So that that's there too as well. And you get to see Jimmy Kimmel. And I would also say anybody that has access to HBO um, in July was a great, um, I, I was interviewed by Mary Carrillo and it's a, it really is a great documentary of, of my life story and how the fanatic came to be and, and, um, and some, some great stories that I think you'd appreciate. And I think it was so well done by Mary and their, their production and editing team at HBO. So that if you can HBO max, it's there. I, I love HBO real sports. It's a wonderful, I've been watching it forever. Um, and that it was last July's episode. Um, and I'd love you ha if you can get a hold of it, tune in and watch that as well. Well, perhaps if you will allow, as we get this out there, perhaps we could put those links in to, uh, help people find those things. Um, Dave, you know, it's almost contrived to say that it's been fun, but it actually has, it's <laughs> been fun. Uh, and I learned some stuff, and I think you've uh, left my audience in a better way, which is the only purpose. Uh, any closing thoughts for me and, and 53,000 people listening to, you know, every word? Yes, well, I'll tell you, we're, we're recording this on a Friday, Chris, so I'm, I'm going to give you a piece of powerful fun. You're required somewhere around 5, 30, 6 o'clock, whenever you uh, are done doing your normal business activities, you're required now to pour your favorite adult beverage. And I want you to take the first sip, and I want you just to feel that sip go down your throat and right and just coat the inside lining of your stomach and then take a deep breath and go, the power of fun. <laughs> I well, just I tell you. entered the fun world right now. I may not wait till 5.30. <laughs> Thanks, Dave.